long ago, at the very beginning of the biblical story, as we saw, well, we saw the, the, bad, end of, the bad ending of the Garden Eden uh, history. But at that time, before man fell, God dwelt with man in peace and in plenty. But Adam and Eve, as we know, were tempted by the adversary and they fell, plunging themselves and the whole human race into sin and misery. But God did not write off his creation because instead he would send a redeemer. The promised redeemer would be the seed of a woman and not the offspring of both a man and a woman. This was the great promise given by God to fallen mankind, as I mentioned before, at Genesis 3.15. This coming Redeemer hero would crush the head of the serpent. He would reverse the effects of sin and roll back the ruin that had come upon all creation by Adam's fall. But how would this come to pass? God began to work out this plan of redemption, would begin to reverse the effects of the fall, by calling a man, a man named Abram, to come and dwell in a land that God would show him. It was a land that would flow in milk and honey. But the point was, God and his people would live together again in peace and in plenty. And that's where they would do that, in Canaan. In that place, God would be a God to them, and they would be a people unto him once again as in Eden. But the Canaanites dwelt in the land at that time, and Abram could only sojourn there in that promised land. He could only live there in a tent. He could only dwell there as a stranger. You see, the iniquity of the Amorite, we are told in Scripture, as God told Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet complete. God's wrath against the wicked of that land was storing up. God was drawing back his bow. So the day of wrath, as well as the day of Abraham's inheritance, was still a ways off. But centuries later, God at last brought Abraham and his offspring, or rather his offspring, into that place of peace and of plenty. And then they did take possession of it. The people of God came into the land, but this time they did not come into it as sojourners, dwelling in tents, but instead as conquerors, seizing cities. Their day of inheritance and the day of judgment for the Amorites and the other Canaanites had both finally come. Turn with me now, beloved, to the end of the story. Turn with me to the book of Revelation again? Well, not exactly. Turn to the book of Joshua. After the five books of Moses, ending in Deuteronomy, you'll find the book of Joshua. Please turn to Joshua chapter 21. Verses 43 to 45. Joshua 21, 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest 
on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. None of the promises had failed. The promises that God gave to Abram in chapters 12, 15, and 17 of Genesis had come, as we are told, to pass. Turn to chapter 23 of the same book, verse 14. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. The promised land had come into the possession of Abraham's offspring. God had performed his promises. Nothing promised, we are told, had failed. And so they lived. God and his people happily ever after. Strangely enough, however, the Bible does not end when Abraham's seed came into the full possession of that land. God, we are told, had performed his promise to Abraham. His offspring possessed the land. The wicked were also visited with God's wrath. But the story went on. Why? What was happening? From their perspective, this was the end of the world. This was the eschaton. The conquest of the land was the day of the Lord in their eyes. God had come to dwell with man once again in peace and in plenty, as in Eden. They would be his people, and he would be their God. The iniquity of the Amorite was also complete. The day of visitation had come, and the wicked had been crushed and dispossessed. But God and his people did not, in fact, live happily ever after, when the offspring of Abraham at last possessed the promised land. So what did happen next? What happened next was that death continued to reign. People still became sick. The promised land itself still produced thorns and thistles. Even though God's promises had been fulfilled, even though Abraham's seed possessed Palestine, death and disease remained. Man still extorted the produce of the earth by the sweat of his brow, and covenant-breaking and violence still abounded. Read the book of Judges sometime, the next book in the Bible, and you will see that this is so. The period of the Judges was a period characterized by anarchy, fear, and the oppression of God's people by various enemies. Though individual deliverers called judges or rulers were raised up by the Lord to deliver his people during that time, the personal lives of the judges displayed their imperfections and their sins as much as their, as their virtues and their strengths. Ultimately, the book of Judges is a catalog of failure. None of the judges proved to be the promised seed of the woman. So the promised restoration did not yet come when the Hebrews inherited Canaan. God and man did not yet quite dwell together in peace and in plenty as they had long ago in the Garden of Eden. The longed-for the long restoration of all things 
was still yet to come. Now imagine yourselves to be back in ancient Israel during the time of King David. Transport yourself back to the, to the reign of King David. Centuries later, after Joshua, the Hebrews were given kings. Kings to rule over them instead of judges. Now, this was different. This was something new. Neither the patriarchs, nor Moses, nor Joshua, nor the judges raised up by God had proved to be the seed of the woman. None brought about the restoration of all things. Perhaps the arrival of the monarchy would usher in the peace and the plenty and the fellowship with God that his people had hoped for since the fall of Adam. God did give David rest on all sides against his enemies. The pagan people of the land had at long last been decisively subdued by David's sword. There was even talk of building a house for Yahweh to dwell in, right in their midst. Now maybe God would dwell with man once again, as he had in Eden. Well, let's turn together to 2 Samuel 7. Turn to the right a few books over. 2 Samuel Chapter 7, and we will look at verses 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, own, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Forever. These verses tell us that a son of King David would reign over God's people, and he would do so forever. And so after David had waxed old and was gathered to his fathers, David's son did in fact ascend to his throne. King Solomon, the wisest of the kings of the earth, now takes his seat upon the throne of David. King Solomon is also a prince of peace, unlike his father David, who was a man of war. And so Yahweh allows Solomon to build his house, to build his temple. Again, turning to the right, go to 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. And first verse 20, and then... Chapter 4, verse 25. So 1 Kings 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Turn to chapter 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Put yourself back in this time, beloved. In fulfillment of God's specific promise to Abraham, the people are now numbered, we are told, as the sands of the sea. And we are told that every man is under his own vine and under his own fig tree. The people of God, we are told, sit down, they eat, they drink, they are happy. They have peace, we are told. They have plenty. Now, surely, all is fulfilled. 
In chapters 6 through 8 of this book, the temple is, in fact, built by Solomon. Turn to chapter 8. Look at verses 10 and 11. Chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Again, this is 1 Kings. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister, minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Here we can see that God's presence, his special covenantal presence, descends upon the temple. He's taking up residence in his house. Note that in verse, verse, verse 13, excuse me, Solomon's apparent expectation and that of his people is that God will in fact dwell in Solomon's temple forever. Note in verse 20 that Solomon believes that he is the promised son of David who would sit on David's throne and build a house for Yahweh's name. Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple follows until verse 54. Let's look at verse 54 to 56. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he had promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. As King Solomon said, God had now fulfilled all his promises given to the fathers and unto Moses and unto David. So now God and his people at long last lived happily ever after. Well, again, we know that that is not what happened. But how could Solomon be wrong? The people are in the promised land. There is peace and there is plenty. The glory cloud of Yahweh's presence has even descended upon the house of the Lord in their midst. And God would apparently dwell with man again forever. The Lord's anointed, the Lord's Mashiach, or Messiah in Greek, is dispensing wisdom and judgment from David's throne in Jerusalem. And sacrifices for sin, we are also told, are of such a great mind-boggling quantity that in 1 Kings 8, verse 5, we are told that they could not even be numbered. Can you see the significance of all these things for the people of God back then? All has been fulfilled. All has been accomplished. The fall is undone. The exile of mankind from God's presence is over. It is finished. One might have said on that great day in the history of the people of God, Solomon, in effect, said as much. But was it? Let's turn now to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at chapter 1, just the first 11 verses. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already, in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after Is this really the same man? The same man who prayed that prayer back in 1 Kings. Such heights of utter jubilation in 1 Kings have given way to complete disillusionment here. Nothing is new under the sun, he says. What he means is that everything goes on just like before times. Although Abraham's offspring, as numerous as the sands of the sea, now filled the promised land of Palestine, although peace and plenty abounded, though each man was happy under his own vine and fig tree, and sheep and oxen were there for sin offerings in their untold thousands, Solomon has been brought to a place where he admits all is vanity. Nothing had really changed. The restoration of all things did not come. Sin and the last enemy, death, had not been vanquished. So this prompts the question. What was Solomon, or for that matter, the writer of the book of Joshua, talking about when they claimed that all that God had promised had been fulfilled? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 near the book of Revelation in the back. Hebrews 11. And in this place, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews lists off this great roll call of faith. Here he extols the faith of individual saints in the Old Testament. But look down at verse 39 of Hebrews 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Here he says that they did not receive the promises. The people of God in the Old Testament, we were told in separate places in the Old Testament, had received what God had promised. But here we are told they never really received what God had promised. They were given the things promised to Abraham and to Moses and to David, as we saw, the scripture says so. Yet as Solomon so poignantly put it, even when they had the land of Palestine and all of its peace and plenty, nevertheless they had never really received the things that God had promised. Nothing really new was under the sun, 
after all of those fulfillments, so-called, those typical fulfillments, the effects of sin remained. Death, disease, thorns and thistles. All was still vanity. But note closely, beloved, verse 40a, the beginning of verse 40 of Hebrews 11. God provided something better. Since God had provided something better. God's promises had not failed, beloved. His performance did not fall short of his promises. Rather, his performance of his promises went beyond the promises. The performance went beyond the promise to the same degree that the substance or body which casts a shadow goes beyond the shadow. Now, beloved, transport yourselves to the days of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. This generation of the people of God was making an error of interpretation that by now should be very familiar to us. Jesus' generation also was looking for a kingdom that would come with observation, as the King James puts it. They too were looking for the types rather than the antitype. They too hoped for vain and empty shadows to fulfill God's promises to his people. They were still looking for things as fulfillments of God's promises that when enjoyed in their fullness under Solomon were ultimately dismissed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as vanity, emptiness. Turn to the Gospel of Luke again. I told you we'd be all over the scriptures today. Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Verses 20 and 21. Luke 17, 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus' contemporaries were, like so many of their ancestors, and like so many interpreters today, mistakenly looking for the fulfillment of God's ancient promises in terms of a literal land, the land of Palestine. The people of God in Jesus' day still identified peace and plenty, lost since Eden, with a mere parcel of land and its fruits. They still wanted to sit down, to eat, to drink, and to be merry, to be happy under their own vine and fig tree. But even on their, own, on their best days, those earlier fulfillments of the promises, as we saw in Joshua's day and in Solomon's day, were but pictures of the true fulfillment. The land of Canaan or Palestine, even when enjoyed in its fullest peace, peace and most bountiful plenty, was, as Solomon was forced to admit, vanity. Even John the Baptist fell prey to mistaking the shadow for the substance, the picture for the reality. He too was wrongly looking for a kingdom that would come with observation. When John the Baptist had been arrested and cast into prison, his life hanging by the slender thread of Herod's whim, he sent his associates to Jesus to find out if he could really be the coming king of Jewish expectation. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, 
chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? How could Jesus of Nazareth be the long-awaited Messiah who would destroy the wicked out of the land and establish the long-anticipated kingdom of peace and of plenty in which God would dwell with his people forever? Here was John the Baptist, the anointed one's own herald, sitting chained in a dank prison under the threat of imminent execution. How could this be? Later on, even after Jesus' resurrection, his own disciples, they didn't understand either that those ancient promises did not have their fulfillment in the manner they expected. Remember the words of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road we read this morning as part of the sermon text. They said to Jesus, We had hoped he'd be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. See the woodenly literal and carnal way they too were conceiving of the kingdom and of Israel's promised redemption. Consider Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Try to take in the full import of what Peter said there. The sending of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise of the Father. God's people have so often been tempted to look to a temple of stone, to the land of Palestine, purged of human enemies and filled with peace and plenty, like that which was lost in Eden, as the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament. And in doing so, they have always been disappointed in the end, even disillusioned, like Solomon. They look for an inheritance in this world, but instead ultimately received something better. Recall Hebrews 11. They received something better. That is, they expected merely to receive the promises of God. But in receiving the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ, they received instead the God of the promises. They looked for a holy land, but received the Holy One. I am thy exceeding great reward, declared God to Abraham. The Lord is my portion, my inheritance, says David by the Holy Spirit. Take a moment later today as part of your private or family worship to read the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And in those pages you will see the inspired prayers and praises of Mary, the mother of Jesus, of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and of an old holy man and of an old holy woman, Simeon and Anna. By the Spirit, these saints saw that Jesus Christ was personally the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and to the fathers, and of all the hopes and expectations of Israel and of the nations, all long since exiled from God's presence in Eden. These saints were made to see what so many Old Testament saints did not see, and so many Jews and Christians today also do not see. These saints saw that the promises are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is personally the fulfillment of all the promises. Palestine is not. Indeed, all the promises of God, we are told, find their yea and their amen, their fulfillment in him. At Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, the land of Canaan is held out as the apparent source of Israel's long-awaited rest. But even when every Israelite got his land inheritance and sat under his own vine and fig tree, still they were left asking, is this it? If it is, then nothing new is under the sun. All is vanity. But what could be more vain, beloved? That is, what could be more empty? That's what the word vain and vanity means. What could be more empty than a mere shadow? It was all still vain or empty because Israel had inherited only the shadows. Shadows that were cast by the coming substance. The promised peace and rest of Canaan were mere shadows. Shadows of the one who said, Come to me and I will give you rest. For he himself is our peace, says the Apostle Paul at Ephesians 2.14. But he is not only our long lost peace, the plentiful food and drink enjoyed by the people of God in Canaan for a while served only as pictures of that true spiritual food and drink eventually to be provided by Christ alone. Recall, At a well, located right in the promised land, Jesus encountered a Samaritan woman. And he told her that the water that she could drink from that well can never, never ultimately satisfy. Those who drink from it, he told her, will thirst again. And then what did he say? He said, whoever will drink of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The ample drink offered by the wells of Canaan were but a picture of the coming true spiritual drink found in Christ alone. Only his living water can slake our spiritual thirst. And the bountiful food offered by Canaan was but a shadow of Jesus Christ too, who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He says at John 6.55 that he himself is true food. And true drink, just as he identified himself as the true vine. And by these things, he means that he is the anti-type. And the promised flowing milk and honey of Canaan were but types of him. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me at John 7.37. So all that seemed to be promised to Israel regarding Edenic peace, rest, abundant food, and drink were really pointing to something better. That something better is Jesus Christ. And the same goes for the ancient human hope of dwelling once again with God and not simply enjoying peace and plenty and food and drink. That is, the tabernacle and the temple of old were but shadows too. The New Testament tells us that in Emmanuel alone, which means God with us, will we find the longed-for dwelling place of God with man. It tells us that God's dwelling place with man is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. Let us then look to Jesus Christ for the fulfillment of all the promises of God. The ancient promises of living with God, living with him in peace and in plenty, 
for they are all fulfilled only in him. We now await his return at the end of the age for the full and final restoration of all things, only begun at his incarnation. We now look forward to the consummation, to Christ's second coming in glory. But beloved, pay heed to this. As it was with the land of Canaan before the conquest, so it is with this entire world before his return. The iniquity of the Amorite, again, is not complete. The iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. The wrath of God against the wicked is now once again storing up against the day of wrath. Once again, he is drawing back his bow. But this time, for the entire world. And the day of God's visitation upon the wicked will again be the day of our inheritance. When the iniquity of the wicked is complete, then the last of God's elect will have been perfected. Their wanderings in the desert will have purged them of their remaining dross, and they will be ready to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. God will himself drive out the wicked who have defiled the land, that is, who have defiled his earth, and he will give it purged and renewed into the possession of his pilgrims. If any land promise of the Old Testament has a physical fulfillment, it is the new heavens and the new earth. That is the only promised land that yet remains to be delivered into the hands of the people of God. They had back then in obtaining the promised land, Canaan or Palestine, only inherited the pictures of what was promised. As if you were promised a great estate on a Monday, and before you came to take possession of the reality of it, the substance of it, substance of it on the following Saturday, you were given first that Wednesday a brochure with many pictures and blueprints, fine photos. But if that's what you had received on Wednesday, you might appreciate the qualities of the brochure, the fine photos and blueprints, but that would fade fast. And you would come to say, as Solomon did, that such was mere vanity. Such were very poor images of the real thing. We need to understand, beloved, that the Bible reveals that the Old Testament promises of God are fulfilled in our triune God's giving us himself in the environment of a new heaven and a new earth. Only in the eschaton will we enjoy the complete fulfillment of his promises to us in consummate fulfillness. And only then, beloved, will the last enemy be finally vanquished by Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. Death, disease, sickness, frustration, emptiness, vanity, and want. Only then will all of these things be things of the past. But if any man, anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, we are warned in scripture, he too will be thrown into the lake of fire. So be not found among the people of the land in the day of the Lord's visitation. For the day of his people's fully and finally inheriting the promises is also the day of judgment. So repent and believe in him. And so be found safe in him when that day of wrath arrives. Put all your trust in him in whom alone are all the promises of God, yea and amen. And in whom alone 
is the only consolation of Israel and the only hope of the nations. The Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.